you join me in prayer? So Jesus, we just thank you so much for this morning the ability to gather in your name and bring you glory today. Uh, We look to your word, Lord, not just as a a history book, although that is part of it, but Lord, as a a textbook of how we ought to be living out our lives. Um, Help us to build ourselves around you instead of trying to add your word as just another source of information into our lives. God, we pray that you would humble us today. We pray that you would do an amazing, miraculous work in all of our lives, and it is in your holy name we pray pray. Amen. So you've heard us a few times, or we're starting this new series today, the classics, I think is what they're referring to it as, old school maybe, I don't know. I, th- I read classics. Is it actually called old school? Okay. So we're off to a great start. So it's called old school, not classics. <laughs> but so this is week one of that. We're singing through Victory in Jesus, which is an amazing hymn. Um, and so as I was, so I was gifted this thing to say, hey, Josh, we want you to listen to this song and then preach a sermon based on the content that is within this song. So the question that we're essentially asking or trying to find the answer to together in our time this morning is, what does it mean or what does it look like to live out victory in Jesus? In a fallen, broken world, you don't have to look very far to see that our world is not living for Jesus. It does not look like the life of Jesus. So what does it look like to live out victory in Jesus in a world that is very far from Jesus? So one lyric that really struck me as I was listening to the song and studying the lyrics and and kind of trying trying to build up this sermon out of this song, and one of the lyrics that really stuck out to me is the end of verse one, which says, then I repented of my sins and won the victory. So we see that, that this song illustrates the connection or the relationship between repentance and victory. So repentance, for anyone who does not know what that means, um, repentance is essentially a 180 degree turn. And when used in Christian circles, it's often referred to as like, so if I'm walking in this direction, which might be my selfishness, my sin, my own desires, and I'm going to make a 180 80-degree turn and follow after the life of Jesus and his teaching and what he has for me. So if I'm living in sin, right, if I, whatever, whatever sin each of us are tempted towards, because all of us are different, we all have different temptations, I'm walking towards that temptation. I'm taking steps towards living a life within that sin, and instead of continuing to walk in that direction, I'm going to walk towards Jesus. So we see then that there's this connection between repentance, turning away from our own ways, and finding victory in Jesus. Um, so, so to me, what, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking of victory, and victory is great, but it's sort of a, a concept that exists. It's like, okay, yeah, there was, there was victory over there, but what does that actually mean for my life? And I was thinking through the connection between victory and freedom, and I don't see Rob Connolly here today, but he's hopefully going to come today. And if he does come, then he can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm about to get into some history of America, and he knows a lot more than I do about that. But um, So Rob, if you're listening, or when you come later, please correct me. Um, so the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776. But the interesting thing to me about that is that the war was not yet over. They declared independence, but their declaration of independence was more a declaration of their desire for independence, not actually independence happening as of yet, because the war continued on and ironically ended on September 3rd, which is today's date, in 1783. So there were seven more years of fighting before victory actually happened and before independence actually took place. 
So we have this weird tension of seven years where they declared independence but didn't actually have it yet. And it wasn't until they won the war that they actually won their freedom. So today we're going to be looking at um, Galatians 5, 1 through 12, and we're going to be learning about the freedom that comes with the victory won by Christ on our behalf on the cross. Um, so quick backstory, again, three to five minutes is quick. Um, so quick backstory on uh, the the letter of the Galatians. So this written by this guy named Paul, who was a, a missionary to this region, and he essentially planted this church and then handed it off to some local church leaders to say, hey, this is your thing now. I'm going to go and start the next movement of, of, of Christianity and of the gospel. Um, and he, he hears some things that are concerning for him. So he writes a letter to this group of people, and, and we're kind of zoning in on a portion of the letter that he writes to this group of people. And it seems the intent of the letter is to clarify the message of Jesus. It seems that there was some confusion uh, about what that really was, what it meant, what it looked like. And so he's writing to this group of people to clarify this message. Um, so we're dropping in on um, Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. Um, it'll be behind me on the screen. You can find it in your, in the, in, in your Bible or in a Bible app or wherever you uh, get the Bible. It's everywhere today, which is amazing. So wherever you get that, we can um, join there together. So starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 of the book of Galatians. And it starts with this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So it starts with, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And that's important because sometimes in our Christian life, we think it is for heaven that Christ has set us free, that we, we accept Jesus, and then when we die, we'll go to heaven. But there's a lot of blurry years in between the point of our freedom now and our freedom in heaven. So it's not just for heaven that Christ has set us free, although it's part of it. It's for freedom here and now. It's not for um, servitude. You know, we, we do serve in ministry, and that, that brings joy to us and to the Lord, but that's not the reason he set us free. So I have this whiteboard here, and as you first look at it, I think it is crooked because somebody told me it was, and then I tried to fix it, and I think I made it worse, but this is what it looks like. So, so we're going we're gonna to go through this framework in our time today. Hopefully, it'll make sense by the end. But so what we have is on the one side, the story that we could tell ourselves is freedom in Christ. Also, my handwriting is terrible, so you probably won't even be able to read it, and from the back of the room, you probably won't be able to see it, but I hopefully will, in my words, be able to explain what's going on. So on the one side, we have freedom in Christ. And on the other side, so the opposite of freedom would be slavery. So on the other side, we have a yoke of slavery. And as we continue um, reading Paul's writings here, we're going to understand and unpack more of what this yoke of slavery is or what it means or what it can look like in our lives. Um, but so, so that's sort of the framework that we're working with. There's two opposing storylines or narratives that one could have of their life. It's either freedom in Christ or it's a yoke of slavery. And hopefully in our time together, we'll understand that there really is no middle ground. It's one or the other, you do kind of have to pick which one you're going to be living in. Um, so our big idea for today is taken right out of the scripture, taken right from verse one, and I want to repeat this as many times as possible so it can be drilled into our heads. It's that for freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Our big idea for today is that for freedom, Christ has set us free. And we're going to continue reading, and as we continue moving through the passage, again, hopefully this framework and this scripture will come to life and we'll be able to unpack and understand it together. So let's continue reading. We'll be uh, in Galatians 5, uh, starting now in verse 2. And so Paul writes, so he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, we'll get to that later, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So circumcision... Um, for any who aren't, who aren't familiar with the biblical understanding of circumcision, in our modern world, most male babies are circumcised. It's just something we do. It's for a medical reason. So, so to kind of get back to the roots of that, so God gave circumcision as a command to Abraham in the Old Testament, and circumcision was something they did on the eighth day of a, a baby boy's life, and it was something to set the, the Israelites apart from everyone else. It was something that they did to set themselves apart. And so to me, what I see Paul illustrating is you have to pick one. Either you will be set apart in Christ and for Christ and by Christ, or you will be set apart by your own actions. You can try to go your own way, and and we'll kind of see how that ends up working out. So unfortunately, there's this group of people um, earlier in the text, uh, I think it's in chapter one, Paul refers to them as the circumcision party um, in, in text and, and scholars refer to these people as the Judaizers. Um, so it's a group of Jewish people who have come to Christ and they're now a part of, you know, imagine if we're here as Christians in a church and there's some, some Jewish people who have come to Christ. And unfortunately, they're still trying to operate out of their old framework And so they're telling these Gentiles who are converting to Christianity, yeah, that's great that you have Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. Jesus is good, but what we need you to do is also do your part in earning your salvation or making it going your own way. And so Paul will continue to illustrate that essentially that's not how this works. Um, That if you either have circumcision or Christ, and you kind of have to pick one. So in our world today, politics are a mess, right? And no matter which side of the aisle you sit on, it's a mess. And so think about this group, this circumcision party, these Judaizers. They're they're a powerful political group that are trying to impose their ideas and their will on these Gentile Christians who are coming into the picture. And unfortunately, as Paul will continue to illustrate, they're not correct in what they're saying. They're trying to take Jesus's message and add to it, and that doesn't really make any sense, which again, hopefully will continue to make sense in our time today. So so in our framework here, so we have the yoke of slavery, and something that's associated with the yoke of slavery then is circumcision. Oh, that's not right. How do you, I think I spelled it wrong. We're good. (laughs) You know what I mean. Um, Again, I'm sorry for my handwriting. My wife always yells at me for it, but we're working on it. So, um, so, okay, so we have on the one side this yoke of slavery associated with circumcision. Let's continue reading. Um, We'll be now in verse 5 of Galatians 5, and it says, 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves, that being those who have accepted Christ, eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, this might be the most important verse we read today, so let's really focus in on our attention. I know many of us, I know when I'm listening to a preacher, I often get distracted. So if you were distracted before, try to pay attention just for this specific verse. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. And any of us who have been a part of Wellspring for a while should know this verse because Pastor Jason signs every email and every postcard and everything with Galatians 5, chapter 6. So to Pastor Jason, this verse is important. To me, this verse is very important. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but what? Only faith faith in God, first and foremost, working out through our love to both God and others. So again, we have two conflicting narratives. We have a yoke of slavery. We have freedom in Christ. And on this side, circumcision is deeply associated with this. And in freedom in Christ, we have faith working through love. So it starts with our faith. It's not, it's not a work in and of ourselves. We don't, we don't initiate the work. It starts with our faith in God, and, and then his spirit comes into us, and our faith then works its way out through our love, both to God and to others. Okay. Are we tracking so far? Are we good? Okay. So here's the interesting thing. This all really hit me very deeply. Um, this kind of actions identity story framework thing is a, is a new concept for me. A pastor that I've recently come in contact with has really, has really tried to steep me in this. And, and I've had to come to terms with the fact that, yes, I wasn't so narrowed in on circumcision specifically, but I was, I think, too I was too heavily emphasizing my own actions in the work of my salvation, very unintentionally. And, and I think the, the problem that I was having was a problem of certainty, right? So when we have faith in God, it's a belief in things hoped for and not seen. And I think what I wanted to do was make my faith tangible so I could grab onto it, make it concrete so that I could see it and know it and have it. And, and I think oftentimes many believers have this struggle because we're so, we get so angry, at people who sin or people who don't believe what we believe. And, and we get so mad because it conflicts with our understanding of the certainty that we have. But the faith that we have should lead to a humility, not to a certainty. Now, I went to Bible college, and I didn't know this at the time, but I think part of me going to Bible college was trying to put God in a box and trying to solidify myself as, yes, I have arrived as a Christian. I have a degree, a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. That's great. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But I wanted to get all the answers. And when you have a degree in something, right, like if you have a degree in neuroscience, you're expected to kind of know most of the ins and outs of that field. And me studying the Bible, I think I was going there thinking, okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to have it all figured out. I'm going to get all the answers. And I got to the end, and I was very disillusioned because I was trying to turn the gray area of life into black and white, and it didn't work. And so for a long time after I finished Bible school, I think I really ran away from God. And it was really hard for me to go to church on Sundays. It was really hard for me to live out and practice my faith because I kind of got to the end, and I was like, wait, that's it? Like... 
I don't have it all figured out yet, and this isn't making sense to me. So we talk about this idea of freedom, and, and we see from the Judaizers' point of view uh, an aspect of legalism. They're trying to live out their life in a way that's going to translate to freedom in Christ. But the reality is legalism is never going to lead us to freedom. There's no scenario where legalism leads us to freedom because if we are basing our identity on our actions, okay, and so for for us, let's say it's not circumcision, okay, right? It's not because we're not so focused in on that anymore, but let's just call this life choices, okay? That, That might be more relatable to each of us here in the room today. So our life choices. So if we're basing our concept of our identity on our life choices, then our identity is a constant question mark. Why? Because today I might make great choices. I'm preaching the word of God today. There's great blessing and honor in that. So my life choices today in this exact moment might lead to an identity that looks pretty nice. But what if after church today, I get really mad and I yell at my kids and now I'm living in sin, so my life choices aren't so good and now my identity becomes also not so good. Because if our identity, if our if our identity is based in this legalism that we need to follow all the time, Paul says if you're going to do this, you have to keep the whole law, all 613 commandments that are written in the Bible. And we know from history and from our own lives that that's completely impossible. So we are going to be in a constant state of life choices. This is going to be a question mark, and that's why this becomes a yoke of slavery because we have to keep going back to the top and keep running in circles and not actually getting anywhere versus if we place our faith in the freedom that we have in Christ, then the identity that we gain from Christ is that we are now called children of God. Amen? We are children of God, not based on our life choices, based on the finished work of Christ on the cross which can lead us to be children of God, which can lead to faith working out through love. But if we base our life on our choices, we base our identity on our choices, it will always be in question. Because if you make good choices, your identity is great. And if you make terrible choices, then your identity is terrible. And again, there's not really any in between. So if we put our faith in ourself, or if we try to say, Jesus is great, but also I have to do X, Y, Z, I have to take steps one, two, and three, But it's an important element that that this is faith and this is our own work. So the work of Christ is done on the cross, amen? But we must accept that work and believe in that work to be considered children of God because if we're trying to go our own way, we will always be in question. So again, our big idea for today is that for freedom, Christ has set us free, but there's an important element in this picture And that is we must accept Jesus because if we look at the Garden of Eden, God gave them a choice and they chose to try to become their own God. And that is what led to them to sin and go away from God because God doesn't want us to just be robots. God has the power to control every decision we ever make, but he doesn't want to do that because then we'll just be robots. There's not actually a relationship that exists if someone is completely forced to do something. If you lock someone in a jail cell, you can't say, they love it here. They chose this. They want to be here. You have locked them in. They have no other choice. So God gives us choice. We can either 
tried to live under the law and live under circumcision, which ultimately and inevitably will lead to a, a yoke of slavery, or we can choose to have faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, which leads us to be children of God. And again, our actions over time and naturally will become our faith working through our love. So we're going to continue. Um, this is Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 7. And Paul writes, again, to this group of people, he loves these people because he visited with these people. He built relationships. He broke bread with these people and started a church with these people. And so he says this. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I see that first phrase, you were running well, is almost like, like an older brother, kind of like a, a, parent, a parental phrase, like a sense of not necessarily disappointment, but just like a discouragement. Like take the wind out of your sails. Like you were, things were going so well. You were going towards Christ. You were repenting from your old ways. And, but someone has come along and they've kind of distracted you from the way that you were going. And maybe he doesn't know exactly who that is. So he's like, well, who did that? Who was it that hindered you from going this way? This persuasion, that being the persuasion of the Judaizers, that, that you got to accept Christ plus your circumcision. And then they're thinking that these two things together will lead to freedom in Christ. But this clearly depicts that that's not how it works. That Paul's saying, no, it's Christ. Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. His finished work on the cross is our salvation, not his finished work plus our life choices. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, in, in verse 9, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is almost like him saying, one bad apple spoils the bunch. Leaven, if you look through the, the studies of the Old Testament especially, leaven oftentimes was a symbol of evil. Um, and, and through several festivals of the Old Testament, they would completely rid their house of leaven. Um, and so it's kind of like a way of clearing house, cleansing your home um, for the sake of righteous living. And he says a little bit of leaven can leaven the whole lump. A little bit, a little bit of faulty theology can destroy the whole picture. If you miss this point and you start here, a little bit of a flaw in your thinking is going to destroy the whole process. He says, he says uh, in verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. The Bible is very clear that false teachers will face a severe penalty. And Paul is hopeful that in his, so Paul encountered Jesus or, or God very directly. And he now sees the truth and the light. And he's hopeful that this group of people will see that is freedom that Christ has set us free. So don't worry so much about circumcision. Worry about this and let everything flow out of that. And he says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. 
When I first read that verse, I was extremely confused, so I had to do some research. And, and it seems that the prevailing thought is that Paul, again, heard sort of a rumor that he, I'm guessing it was the Judaizers who spread this rumor. That's not in here, but it's sort of inferred that, that the Judaizers were people that were saying, hey, listen, like, you need Christ plus circumcision, that they might have been telling people, hey, listen, even Paul himself was circumcised, and he believes that you need to be circumcised too. But Paul is seeming to respond to this rumor and saying, hey, listen, like, Paul is a guy who, if you look through the scriptures, is imprisoned a bunch of times. People literally throw rocks at him at various points in his ministry. And he's kind of saying, like, if I was preaching that message, then they would be all right with me. But I'm preaching a message that's contrary to that, and that's why they're trying to kill me. So understand that if, if that was really true, then why are they still trying to kill me? It doesn't, he's saying kind of like, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. Now, this is where Paul, Paul's anger kind of reaches its, its culmination, and he says this. He says, I wish those who unsettle you, verse 12, would emasculate themselves. So what he's saying is, these people who are saying, cut it in, so I know there's young ears in the room, so we all understand as adults what circumcision is, and hopefully we all understand then what it means to emasculate yourself, so I'm not going to get into the graphic details of that, but what he's saying is, hey, listen, like, if you think that your life choices are going to lead to your freedom in Christ, why stop at cutting off a part of yourself? Just cut off the whole thing, because then you really can be sure right? Like there's, a, there's an anger, there's a sarcasm. I appreciate that. There's an anger and a sarcasm where he's saying like, if you're so, if you think that this is going to work for you, then just, hey, you better be really sure. Just cut the whole thing off, right? And so, I mean, you can imagine how angry those Judaizers would have been in reading this message. So, so what we can say too, because, you know, so for our framework, talking about a yoke of slavery might not really make sense, um, you know, we might get canceled for saying words like that. So let's, let's just say this, like, let's go, let's go like to be determined. Okay. Because again, our life choices are going to influence our identity and that's in question. But if these two things go well, so again, so for me, for today, for the story that I'm could tell of my life. I woke up early this morning. Um, I came to church to preach the word of God. My life choices are going pretty well right now, right? So my identity might be pretty good. And then the story that I could tell of my life might also be pretty good. So this sometimes feels like it works and sometimes feels like it makes sense. But it's risky because if this doesn't go well, then the rest of it is trash too. So what Paul is saying is, you know, so he says, who has hindered you from obeying the truth is a phrase that he uses. So our big idea again is for freedom, Christ has set us free. The things that we need to then do are accept Jesus because we're not robots. It's our choice to accept this freedom in Christ and then also to obey the truth. And for some of us, that might feel like an unpopular statement or unpopular opinion to obey someone else's truth means that they then have the authority in my life and I no longer do. Well, Jesus himself said in John 14 verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus himself says he was the truth. So to follow in the way of Jesus is to follow the truth. Every single day, according to Google, which never lies, we make 35,000 decisions on average. And 
we can go in either direction. Are we going to go our direction of saying, okay, I'm going to make 35,000 decisions, hoping it works out, and then hoping the narrative works? Or are we going to say, I'm free in Christ, essentially regardless of my choices, although they matter, and I am automatically a child of God, and because of that, my desire, as much as I don't follow it perfectly, my desire is for my faith to work out through my love. So, Again, like going back to my Bible college days and after Bible college and kind of feeling disillusioned, as I was reading this and thinking back, especially on that time in my life, I was kind of saying like, okay, for freedom, Christ has set us free. That sounds so great. And we're sitting in church, so that, that kind of clicks for us. But then we walk out these doors and it's like, but why don't I feel free? Why doesn't, why doesn't my life experience feel like freedom if for freedom, Christ has set us free? And I think so often in my life, and some of you may relate to this. I, I would be saying this, and I'd be going, like, in theory, going this way. But in reality, I was thinking, okay, if I go to Bible college, that'll mean that I have some stuff figured out. And I have this degree in biblical studies. And then that in, informs the narrative of my life and everything else. But I got to the end. It was kind of like, I don't, I, it's the, like, I still don't feel free. Like, why don't I feel free, God? Why, why am I making all the right choices, but I still don't feel free? And I think the reality for me personally was that I was trying to gain my freedom. And Christ gained my freedom on the cross. So if I believe this, then I can't believe this anymore, right? If I believe this, then this makes no sense. If I believe this and try to add this, then my life makes no sense. I got it to a place in my life where I was like, God, are you even there? Are you even real? Do you even exist? So like even too, let's look at life circumstances, right? If I make, a, if I make the wrong choice, because we all sin every day, right? If I make the wrong choice in this narrative, even if I make the wrong choice, I'm starting here. So I can still come back to Christ and I still have freedom in Christ and I'm still a child of God and I can still go back to working on, working out my faith through love, accepting Jesus and working on obeying the truth to better my life and to better those around me. But if I make a mistake here, then everything else is destroyed. Or let's take like, maybe, maybe it's not life choices, maybe it's life circumstances. Maybe you lose someone you're very close with, maybe some, just the worst thing that you can imagine happens to you. I'm still free in Christ. I'm still a child of God. I can still work out my faith through love. But if something terrible happens, then I might create an identity that my life is meaningless, and I might create a story that I'm worthless. Because it, if I'm flowing this way, and I put the arrows this way, this way intentionally, because if you see these arrows pointing down, that's like looking around us and trying to make sense of our life and trying to go our own way and make sense of it our own way. And these arrows yet are pointing up and it's saying, God, I have faith in you first and foremost, and I'm going to look to you to inform how I live my life. It's the difference between trying to earn the way versus joining the way. Jesus saying he is the way and the truth and the life. So to go back to the song of today, the, the Victory in Jesus song, the guy who wrote the song was a guy named Eugene M. Bartlett Sr. And so he was a guy that married his high school sweetheart in 1917. So let's go to this framework. If he marries his high school sweetheart, we'll stick to this side for, for right now. So if he marries his high school sweetheart, his identity might be 
successful or something like that. His, the story of his life could be, could be redemption and reconciliation. It could be joy in relationships, whatever the story he tells of his life. In 1918, he starts the, this group called the, the Hartford Music Company, and it's a, a company it's, that he starts to write and record and sing hymns and to teach people how to sing and how to, how to lead in worship. Over his life, he has two kids with his wife. He travels the world singing and teaching. So again, like if we look at that, like that narrative that we have here, his life choices might lead to him thinking, my life is pretty good. My identity is set and secured. And my story that I could tell of my life is that maybe the story then he gets to is that I'm a child of God in the end because of his life choices. Well, in 1939, again, thinking of like, the worst case scenario, right? For him, 1939, this guy has a stroke. He's a, he travels the world, he sings, he teaches, he speaks. He has a stroke, and because of the stroke, he's unable to speak or walk. So now, if we're going by this framework, he's unable to speak or walk. He can't do ministry in the way that he used to. He now may feel that his identity is useless and that the story of his life is broken and destroyed, but what we see, and obviously I never met the guy, but I think, and I, I think I can say with confidence that he operated from this mindset. And the reason why I say that is because it was not before, but after his stroke that he wrote this song that he couldn't speak and he couldn't walk and he certainly couldn't sing, but he wrote this song, Victory in Jesus, and his son had to be the one to perform it because, again, he could no longer speak or walk. So I believe that this man was operating in the freedom of Christ because even though his ministry didn't look the way it used to, his life didn't, he couldn't provide for his family, which for many people in the world is like devastating, right? He couldn't serve the Lord in the way that he was used to. For, for many people, it would be devastating. His whole life falls apart. But if he's free in Christ, then he's still a child of God, regardless of his ability to sing or speak or walk. And he can still live out his faith through love. So as we, as we close today, we're going to be taking communion. Um, you should have received a communion cup when you came in today. I heard a pastor recently preach on communion. Um, and he was talking about the history of different perspectives on communion. And the, the prevailing thought or the way that we practice communion today is often taken um, as in remembrance, which we should be, but almost like a memorial service, grieving the loss of Christ on the cross and grieving the ways in which we put him there. Um, and I truly believe there's a place for that and a place of reflection and a place of understanding where our sin lies and how that keeps us further away from God than he would like to be and how he, he sent Christ to die on the cross so that we could be reconciled with him. So we should. We should remember our sin. We should remember his sacrifice. But, but another way of seeing it, another way of looking at communion and approaching the table of communion is almost more as a victory feast, that Jesus on the cross won the battle over sin and death, and we as believers get to enjoy the freedom that comes with that victory. So today as we take communion, as we take of the body that was broken for us, let's think in joy of the victory that we have in Christ, knowing that we put him there, and that's not good. And that's good to remember that. But today, let's take it in victory. And as we drink of the cup, which represents his blood, 
His blood was spilt on our behalf to win our victory, to gain us freedom over sin and death so that we could be considered children of God, so that we could have faith in something beyond ourselves and work that out through our love. Let's take and drink. So last week, Pastor Graham delivered an amazing sermon, and at the end, his challenge was um, the question, how do you see Jesus? So today, my challenge kind of builds off of that, and my challenge for today is to answer this question. So if we, if we took a whole week and tried to con- grapple with how do we see Jesus, hopefully we see him as who he truly is and who he says he is, but then the question becomes, who am I? And not just who am I, but what or who defines who I am? Because if I'm defined by my life choices, then the rest of my life will be a question mark. If I'm defined by Christ, then the rest of my life is almost predetermined and understood. That my life will always be, my identity will always be a child of God. Nothing I could ever do or say will ever change my identity. So who am I? And who or what defines who I am? So we're going to transition into singing again. And the song that I asked for for the band to sing today is Who You Say I Am. Because if we're a body of people that declares the truth that I am a child of God, and we're a body of people that declare the truth that I am who you say I am, not who I say I am, not who my family says I am, not who culture says I am, but I am God who you say I am, I strongly believe that we will be a people that changes the world. Not for our benefit, but for the glory of God. And let's go to God in song.